0: People aren't binge eating apples and carrots and black beans. So things like chips and cookies and cakes, fast foods, processed foods that have all of these added sugars, salt, fat. They do a couple of things. One is that they do create this release of dopamine that gives us that moment of pleasure. And also studies show that there's something much different about these foods in terms of how they affect our physiology and our sense of fullness. We can just keep eating and eating and not reach a level of satiety like we do when we're reaching for unprocessed foods.
1: Welcome to the exam room podcast brought to you by the physicians committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in River Grove, Illinois, Redmond, Washington, and Southampton, England. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 40 of season 6, number 436 overall. Millions of us right now are leading an unhealthy secret life. Oftentimes we're living it behind closed doors where we are stuffing ourselves well past full. We are way out of control. We are completely unable to stop even though it is uncomfortable and oftentimes even painful. We're talking about binge eating here. A relentless compulsion to just eat and eat and eat and eat. And then there is emotional eating where you've had a bad day and your spouse left you. You can't stand your boss. Maybe you got laid off. The car won't start and there's no money to fix it. Things are not going how they should be. Life is not what you thought it would be. And you need a friend and you know just who to turn to. It's the same friend who you've had for years. The same friend who it seems never lets you down. A friend who is sweet and perhaps even on this day like you, even a little bit salty. Talking about your old friend ice cream here, or a big bag of potato chips, a double cheeseburger, an entire extra-large pizza, or whole sleeve of chocolate chip cookies. But just like that group of friends that your family warned you about back in school, if you hang out with them long enough, you are going to get into trouble. So we've got these two big problems that we're going to be talking about here today on the show. We've got binge eating and we have emotional eating problems that by the way, lead us down the same road and one that turns all of those emotional problems into physical problems and cause your body to break down. And once that happens, you may feel even worse about yourself. But the interesting thing here is that even though we know more often than not what the end game is going to be, we still can't help ourselves. We are still compulsively driven to go down that same road. We just can't find a way to hit the brakes and stop before we eat these foods. It can feel impossible until today because today we are talking about overcoming binge and emotional eating with dietitian Karen Smith and Dr. Venita Rahman. They are here to talk about their new course that is designed to help lead us back into the light and put new brakes on your car so that you can stop in plenty of time. There's always hope and hope is on the way right now with Dr. Rahman and Karen Smith. Thank you both so very much for being here. It is truly an honor to see you once again.
0: Thanks, Chuck.
1: Let's start with binge eating. You know, that to me was something that I experienced 10,000 calories of evil every single day. In your estimation, how many people, Dr. Rahman, how many people do you think are kind of suffering in silence with this?
2: Yeah, you know, really, really important question there, Chuck. Um, I think research shows that it's fairly common binge eating, and it's probably one of the most common types of um, eating disorders that people struggle with. So there are all sorts of statistics, but I think many people are dealing with it in silence and they're not reporting it to their healthcare team. So we're not fully capturing how many people are actually dealing with this issue.
1: And Karen, when you're working with your clients, how how often does this seem to come up?
0: Quite often, Chuck. Um, and really, one of the reasons that I'm so excited to be offering this program is because it is such an issue that uh, people express, and really something that interferes with their ability to, you know, make progress with improving not only their physical health, but emotional health and quality of life.
1: Dr. Rahman, let's kind of talk about the differences between the two. I assume that they can go hand in hand, but there are going to be differences between binge eating and then emotional eating. So how would you differentiate those two?
2: You know, I think first, I'm not sure we need to differentiate them um, because they lie on a spectrum. So I think of whether it's emotional eating or stress in eating or um, binge eating, they're, they're really lying on a spectrum. And what's really underlying all of these is people are eating for reasons other than hunger. Um, Those reasons could be seeking comfort, um, distraction, or happiness. But the underlying theme is food is We should be eating for hunger and when we're not eating for hunger then it's something else going on and the other thing that often underlies both of these is um people experience a sense of loss of control over their eating they feel like this is not the occasional indulgence in a dessert or a a new food this just feels like they really know they're eating more than they need to but they don't know how to stop it so just like not having control over the amount that's
1: eaten, And I guess, Karen, let's turn to you. I mean, not having this ability to stop eating. I know that so well. I mean, there's a reason why I said like you eat until it's painful at the top of the show is because I mean, it took a lot to get 10,000 calories in every single day. And, and of course the trips through the drive-through that were just enormous. And yet I would finish it all off because I just had this drive. As long as there was food there, I had to eat it. Um, what, I guess, let me ask it like this. What are the types of foods that you've noticed with your clients that they tend to binge on more so than others?
0: there are some favorites for sure, Chuck. right? And the foods people tend to seek um, when they have a binge are foods that are high in refined sugars, perhaps refined flours, and or, you know, fat and salt. So things like chips and cookies and cakes, fast foods, processed foods, you know, if we can just sum it up with processed foods, people aren't, you know, binge eating apples and, and carrots and black beans. So, and you know, I think something that you alluded to, Chuck, is that these processed foods that have um you know all of these added sugars, salt, fat, um, they do a couple of things, right? One is that they do create this release of dopamine that um you know gives us that moment of pleasure and also You know, studies show that there's something much different about these foods in terms of how they affect our physiology and our sense of fullness and that we can just keep eating and eating and not reach a level of satiety like we do when we're reaching for unprocessed foods like, you know, those beans and quinoa and fruits and vegetables.
1: Which is really interesting to me um, because I was going to ask you, you know, flat out, what was the likelihood of somebody binging on a bushel of apples versus that entire extra large pizza that I was referencing? And I guess it all goes to how that food is made. Is it heavily processed? But do you think at all, if somebody were, in your estimation, to sit down with that bushel of apples and not go through the drive through and they're doing that out of emotion because they've had a really bad day and they just want to eat something, would they still derive that same pleasure? Would they still derive that same sense of relief at all? Or is it truly a byproduct of the fact that processed foods really play a huge role in how your brain reacts to what it is that we're eating?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. If, if one of the underlying... You know, reasons for binge eating in the first place is um, to distract ourselves. Um, you know, to not pay attention to some type of underlying, you know, uncomfortable emotion. Then those foods are serving a very important purpose of of helping us, you know, avoid those painful emotions and help us feel better. Um, and those unprocessed plant foods don't quite do that that same thing for us, right? In terms of um, creating that same sense of pleasure.
1: There's a few people right now in the chat that are like, well, you know what? It turns out that I can also binge on fruit. Um, beets right now, subject beets, As a matter of fact, uh, they binge eat on medjool dates. Um, Dr. Rahman, just from a medical perspective, uh, whether or not a food is healthy, is binging still a good idea?
2: You know, I think, I think binging is always going to be more of a health issue than anything else because basically, again, people are eating for reasons other than hunger and they don't feel like they have control over their eating. So that creates a problem, whether it's apples or dates or cookies or brownies. We all like to feel like we're in control. And when we feel like we are not in control, that sort of creates this vicious cycle of feeling out of control, not feeling good afterwards. And then that triggers the behavior next time. So it's really, it is problematic regardless of what the food is.
1: But what if it's, you know, what if we look at it in terms of like methadone, right? It's a step in the right direction. And and in this case, the methadone would be a black bean brownie made entirely out of whole food, plant-based ingredients. Most of us would consider that to be a healthy treat. You know, is that still a step in the right direction as opposed to killing an entire box of little Debbie Ho-Ho's?
2: Well, well, sure. You know, there is that spectrum of nutrition quality, too. So a black bean brownie, depending on how it's made, is likely to be more nutritious in terms of fiber, less added fat, less sugar than, say, a traditional brownie. That's usually just this concoction of added fat and sugar, if you will. Um, So definitely there is that spectrum of food, too, that plays a role.
1: And and you guys have teamed up for this amazing course that is going to begin here a little bit later on this month. I'm curious though, one of the things in the outline of the course was a class that talks about the pros and cons for binge and emotional eating. And and it just struck me. I was like, a pro, how, how is there any pro to this? It, it just, it, I had to ask you about that. Is there any upside or what's, what's going on there, Karen?
0: Absolutely. There are rewards to binge eating or pros or else, you know, no one would do it. Um, All of our behaviors, you know, all the choices that we make throughout the day, we make, you know, to get a reward and to help people understand and have awareness of what this is doing for them. How is binge eating? How is emotional eating serving A purpose. And there is always some type of purpose that it is serving for people or else we wouldn't do it, right? And part of that is helping um, people pay attention uh, to what is, you know, the root cause, what is really at the heart of this behavior. And often that is, you know, the piece that's missing. You mentioned Chuck, like, what if we swap an unhealthy food with a healthier food? Well, sure, that might be a step in the Right direction. And if that's the only thing we're doing, we're not really tuning in and addressing the you know, what's at the heart of of this behavior in the first place. So we want to help people see and understand that there's nothing wrong with them, right, that this is a very, very common behavior and that on some level it is serving a purpose.
1: And how does one help somebody identify a trigger? We have a a roomie right now in the chat who's like, well, look, you know, I've crushed an entire bag of clementines in Walmart, but then again, I've also in the grocery store eaten an entire package of tofurkey deli meats. I mean, those are two very different kinds of foods, yet the behavior is the same. I'm wondering though, how does somebody identify what might trigger them to go on an unhealthy binge, Dr. Ramon?
2: You know, that's, I think that's really the key here is figuring out, you know, you asked, well, what can, what pro can there be for something like this? There, there, and as Karen said, it is serving some purpose for us. It may not seem like it, but it is serving a purpose or we wouldn't do it. So that is the big part of the work in the program is identifying what purpose is it serving, because once we identify that purpose, then we can identify the triggers and what activates it. And then once we recognize that pattern, then we can talk about techniques to break that cycle and find other ways to manage those intense feelings.
1: Do you think it's hard for somebody to be able to identify that trigger? uh, Or is it just one day you're kind of walking around and you have this epiphany and you know what triggered you on that day? And then suddenly you can look back at the last time that you went on a binge or you had a bad day and what triggered that that compulsive uh, drive to eat at that point and then you look back a little bit further and then you begin to see this pattern emerge how complicated of a process dr ramon does this tend to be in identifying these triggers
2: no chuck everybody's different there are some people that may have fairly good insight into what triggers it but they may not know what to do beyond that. And then there are some people that may not even be aware that maybe they are dealing with binge or emotional eating. They just know they don't quite feel great about the way they're eating, but they may not recognize it as such. And then there are some people that may recognize that maybe there's an element of binge or emotional eating, but they're not, they truly have no idea what the trigger is or what activates them. And so part of, our program is to really dive into that. And and mindfulness plays a key role, as Karen was alluding, really helping people identify their feelings. Um, And that's a skill that takes time to perfect and hone in on.
1: It's just like anything, it takes practice. Um, But Karen, let me turn to you. I want to lay out two different scenarios here, because with food, you can set that relationship status to complicated. That's just the way that it is. Let me lay out two scenarios. Number one, You're having a really bad day. You lost your job. You're going through a breakup. You're down. You're out. Your emotions are just in the tank. And then you eat pizza to feel better. Now, scenario number two you land your dream job. You just got engaged. You are happier than you've ever been in your entire life. And you celebrate by going to your favorite pizza restaurant. So, how does the mind work differently with your emotions when you're eating? the same type of food.
0: Yeah, I love those examples, Chuck. Um, So I think, uh, you know, we can maybe uh, bring in, you know, a component of mindfulness here and that either example, you know, we're probably on autopilot and that, you know, we've had a bad day. Let's start with that example of, or, you know, it just sounds like an awful, you know, Uh, time in life. We've lost our jobs. And, um, you know, we're not aware of in that moment necessarily that like, okay, I'm going to go eat pizza to feel better. Maybe some people are, right? But that when the binge eating and emotional eating is something that's really interfering with our overall quality of life, a really important step is to start tuning into you know, what's going on in the moment before we make that decision, tuning into, you know, what are the emotions that we're feeling? And also, how are those emotions showing up in our body? You know, how does stress or anxiety or sadness manifest? Because often those physical sensations are things that we don't pay attention to. And can often be the triggers, right? They don't feel good. They're uncomfortable. Those emotions are uncomfortable. And that enough, right? Like as a human, we we don't like discomfort. We are hardwired to, you know, get out of discomfort, to seek comfort. And that is the purpose that you know the unhealthy, um, high calorie foods serve, right? To help us get into um, a, a more comfortable space. And the same is true for, you know, when we're having a great day, right? Just again, recognizing like, what are the emotions? How is our body feeling? And at the same time, another important piece I forgot is to pay attention to the story that our mind is telling us, right? Anytime we're making a decision, we're having thoughts before we do that. And the our minds tell us all kinds of things to try to get us to eat those unhealthy foods. Right. So just tuning in and paying attention and watching how that story unfolds can be really important to helping people figure out, like, what are these triggers? And, you know, having that awareness to start to recognize and, um, you know, maybe question the thoughts a little bit to make a different decision. But that mindfulness piece and awareness of our behavior is really, really important.
1: Dr. Ramon, do you know if genetics play a risk at all in a person's risk for binge eating, um, specifically getting that disorder, or is that completely a byproduct of someone's upbringing or trauma that they've been experiencing in their life? You
2: know, good question, Chuck. It's it's always hard to know this nature versus na- uh, nurture. How much of this is genetic? How much of it is a byproduct? of the environment that we grew up in or that we continue to be in. Um, but research has shown that um, eating disorders and other substance use disorders or other disorders that people may turn to to seek comfort, whether it's gambling um, or compulsive shopping, they tend to travel together. We may see them in families. Now, is that genetic or is that because people are exposed to the same kind of environment? We just don't know. That, level of information we don't have, but we do see a lot of commonalities that there are triggers and this becomes a way of dealing with those triggers.
1: Yeah. And specific to trauma, a little bit of hope in the chat right now from Nicole, who says, I grew up in a very abusive home and have binge and emotionally ate since the age of six. But last year I realized it was a problem and started learning techniques to manage my emotions and it has helped it has helped. So I guess when a person reaches that rock bottom and they truly believe in their heart of hearts, no matter what it is that they try, no matter what actions they take, they just won't be able to overcome this problem. How do you help bring a ray of light back into that person's life, Karen?
0: Yeah, you know, Chuck, I think um, starting a couple of things, right? But starting. at a place of understanding and empathy, and recognizing, like that, this is hard. That this is a hard cycle to break. And even though it's hard, um, it's not impossible. And no matter how many times you might have tried in the past, um, there is always, you know, an opportunity to to make progress, to move forward, and to find the strategies that work for you, and perhaps the things that You've tried in the past, just haven't been the right tools and you know skills to help you through this problem. Uh, and also, you know, a real, I think, um, important thing for people to remember is that this this does take time. That this isn't something that you know you will have fixed in you know a week or two. And to have that patience and kindness with yourself to allow, you know, um, time to grow, to learn from uh, maybe mistakes that you make and see them as opportunities for learning and just understand that this is a process that often takes, you know, months, if not longer uh, to get through.
1: And how difficult of a nut is it to crack here? I mean, it sounds like it does take time. I mean, it, it can take years. And as a matter of fact, Dr. Ramana came across a study that showed that uh, this was looking at women between the ages of 60 and 83, and that was looking at the prevalence of binge eating, and it found that really age was not a factor, and it was a serious problem even for women who are in that demographic and you would think, well, you know, they should have figured it out by the time that they turned 60, not the case. As a matter of fact, money had nothing to do with this either. Basically the same rate of binge and emotional eating, whether the person was earning less than $10,000 a year and having to turn to soup kitchens in order to feed themselves all the way up to women who uh, had doctorates and master's degrees and had been very successful in life, very affluent. Both groups tended to have an estimated problem here in the range of 19 to 26% when it came to binge eating. I guess my question is this, Dr. Rahman, we talked about the difficulty in this being the process, but what takes so daggone long? I mean, these are some ultra smart people here that were included in this study as well. And I'm just thinking... If they have such a hard time figuring it out, even so late in life in their 80s, still binge eating at least once a week. I mean, what can the rest of us do here?
2: You know, I think that's a really important point. Why, why is it so difficult to beat this thing? Or why do people struggle with it for as long as they do? Um, you know, we often think of eating disorders as anorexia or bulimia. We think of them affecting young, mostly women. But what we see with binge and emotional eating is it really goes across all age groups, all demographics, men and women. Um, One of the reasons that maybe it is so prevalent and it does last as long as it does is people often don't seek help. Um, they, They often carry it as a secret. There's often a lot of shame associated with it. They may be reluctant to discuss it with their healthcare provider. They're often discussing other health issues and this ends up taking a backseat or maybe they've brought it up and their healthcare team may not have the resources or tools to help them or maybe seeking psychotherapy or seeing a therapist or a behavioral specialist is cost prohibitive. There are many, many reasons why people may not get the help they need and I think this is one of those areas where I think maybe we have this unique opportunity with technology. And if there's any silver lining in this pandemic, it's that we have been able to use technology to provide health care to not just patients, but also in group settings such as these, where we can reach out to people across the country in ways we couldn't before, you know, before people would have to go to an in-person meeting. Now we can do it so much more easily. So I think... There are many barriers to seeking help, and maybe when they did get help, it wasn't the right help for them.
1: The right help for them. Is there a one-size-fits-all solution, Dr. Ramon, or is this really because it is such a deeply personal problem, you're going to have to come up with a deeply personal solution as well?
2: Uh, There's a lot of research done in this, Chuck, and there's ample research showing that something called cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy, they're both highly effective in managing binge or emotional eating. Um, And that's what our program is based on, on those principles. Um, And then there's definitely a personalized component to it. There's an overarching theme, but then each person has to recognize their own universe and what's activating things for them and how they can manage it. And that's where we provide them with a lot of tools and they can see which ones work best for them. Everyone's a little bit different, you know, just like when people exercise, not everyone does the same thing. People find different things that they like, or everyone has their favorite fruit. Not everybody likes, you know, um, cantaloupe. Um, not everyone likes pears, but maybe some people prefer grapes. So it's just, that's where the individualization comes in.
1: And Karen, what are some of the more common tips that you find workforce? Uh, I guess the widest swath of people, what are, when, when the cravings hit and the urges, I mean, that compulsion just hits so hard. What are some of the tips that you find work most often?
0: Hmm. Well, one thing I love Chuck, you know, when we have an urge is to first you know, tune into it, to just kind of ease into that urge and recognize that that we're having a craving and that it is possible, you know, with with maybe some time and practice to get through it. You know, that that we that that is an option. So there's something called urge surfing. Um, we won't get into that, but that's a strategy that I throw out to people, and we'll walk them through and how to use in practice um, to just tune in, accept, acknowledge the urge, and to to figure out like what is it that I what is it that I need in this moment, right? What will serve me right now? And you know, if there's an emotion um, underlying that urge the answer isn't food. And so we can find other strategies, right? And so sometimes it is also, there's a component of, you know, helping people figure out healthier food swaps, Um, looking at what people are and how people are eating throughout their day, you know, seeing the pattern of when, When are they binging? When are they experiencing emotional eating? And often it might be due to, you know, not eating enough. You know, people are often busy. They're not paying attention. They're going through most of their day without eating any food. And it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. And all of a sudden they're hungry, right? And now they're just eating and it is, you know, they feel like they're out of control. And so we can work on, you know, how about if you start eating, you know, earlier in the day. So just really helping people identify, you know, patterns, walking them through what their day looks like, thinking about, you know, what would you like your behavior to look like? All of those things can be helpful, helpful strategies.
1: And let's talk about really kind of taking the first steps toward getting help, I want to go back to Nicole, who's sharing her story right now in the chat with us. This particular one came in at 1230. She said, look, it was so difficult to admit to myself and even tell my husband. I felt like a drug addict who would buy and prepare food that I'd binge on in secret. And like a drug addict, I was wasting money so I hear Nicole's story and, and and Dr. Rahman. this makes me think back to my days when I was working in radio and there was a subway across the street and I would go there every day without fail and get a foot long sub and then an extra six inch sub on top of that, two bags of chips and two sodas. And I would come back to the office and shut my door and eat everything there for lunch. I felt so guilty and so ashamed. I didn't want anyone to see the quantity of food that I was taking in. And it was so embarrassing to me. And I feel so, so deeply for Nicole, because at that point, I was not ready to admit to anyone or to let them see the extent of my problem. And it was hard for me even to admit to myself one, of one, Somebody earlier in the conversation referenced, you know, the, the funny things that our mind tells ourselves to justify eating that way. And so I would have these conversations in my mind so that I could continue down this unhealthy path. And it took a long time before I was able to finally admit to anyone else that I had a problem and to open up. And Nicole had the same experience with her husband. So how does someone who feels like they are ready to change? take those first steps. What would you recommend, Dr. Ramon?
2: You know, I would recommend that they reach out to their healthcare provider and let them know um, and, and not, not feel ashamed to do it, but think of it as just as you would talk about your asthma or your allergies or your headaches. This is a health issue. It's not a judgment on anyone's behavior or feelings. It's truly a health issue. And Your healthcare team really does want to help you, but they can't help if they don't know. Um, So I would encourage you to open up that conversation and say, how can you help me? Can you direct me to some good resources? Um, Because I think what Nicole shared and what you shared, Chuck, is all too common is people may keep it a secret. They may feel bad about it. They may know it's not right, but they also don't know what it is that they're dealing with. And so they don't even know how to ask for help. If you can't even put a finger on it, then you don't even know how to ask for help. Um, You know, I recall when I was in high school and they would have us run around the track field. I couldn't do a single lap because I had trouble breathing. Well, I was 14. I didn't realize I had exercise-induced asthma. So I just kind of avoided gym as much as I could when there was track involved. I'd make up excuses. It wasn't until I was a med student that I diagnosed myself and I thought, gosh, if I had just known, it would have been so easy to manage. So I think similarly for a lot of people, maybe they just don't know. And so it's hard to say anything, um, but it's always important to just let your healthcare team know whatever it is you're dealing with and ask for help.
1: And to the other end of that, I'll share another story. And that is uh, one time I went out to dinner with uh, members of my extended family. And this is a restaurant in Norfolk, legendary down there for their barbecue and uh, had had a massive dinner. But then I, I drove and I was driving everybody home. But I still, even though we had just had that big dinner and I still had four other people in that car, I could not stop myself. From going to the drive-through and loading up on my $20 worth of Taco Bell because I knew in a couple of hours I was going to want that. And I always wondered, because I'm pretty close to 400 pounds at that point, Karen, I had always wondered why nobody else in the car said anything that night. I was really embarrassed. I was really ashamed about it. And nobody said anything. But I'm sure that there was a level of concern. Because now, thinking back, if I was in their position, I certainly would have had a lot of things rattling around in my mind and wanting to express that concern. How does somebody who is well-intentioned and with nothing but love in their hearts then express concern for somebody who very clearly is struggling with binge eating?
0: Yeah, um, I I think you're bringing up a great point Chuck that in either situation right like whether it's the people in the car who I'm sure like you said are having all kinds of things running through their mind right and speaking up in that moment probably felt uncomfortable to them right so they opted to just avoid that entirely just like Dr. Roman shared you know she'd rather avoid running around the track because that was uncomfortable and that's part of you know what we'll talk through in the program is recognizing that often, you know, we're making choices to avoid uncomfortable things, whether that's, you know, emotions and, and, and to be able to recognize that in ourselves. And in that moment, of course, like be okay with that to recognize, yes, this is hard to support my friend or to say something, maybe your family and friends, you know, they thought that they wouldn't, they would embarrass you you know they they didn't know what to say right and to just say that like i'm here i want to help you i care about you what can i do just ask that question you know express how much you care about whoever it is that you want to help and ask them how can i help you
1: A video 1000 nights at twelve thirty five is wondering whether i still have the tendencies to eat large portions or not uh yeah I do. Um, that's the funny thing. I've I've completely changed my eating habits. Obviously, um, but there you know are still these days when I get to the point where I'm full and I'm ticked off that yeah I'm full, and it takes a lot to push away from the table and and just walk away at that point. And I'll tell you the trick, Doctor Ramon, that works for me to this day when that happens is just to say you know what. The food will still be there when I get hungry again. And so I pack it up and I put it in the fridge and sure enough, the next time I'm actually hungry, there it is. We also have a number of people in there who have their own tips for success, you know, crowd out the unhealthy stuff in their fridge, fill it instead with a lot of fruits and vegetables to make sure that there's nothing but healthy things on hand. I guess what, what are some tips for long-term success? You know, how do we best set ourselves up to cut the string on the yo-yo for that vicious dieting cycle? Talk to us about long-term success, Dr. Rahman. What are the things that you feel are most important with this course?
2: You know, I think um, long-term success really is what everyone's goal is. We're not just looking to help people for a few weeks. We want this to become a lifestyle for them. So the most important thing is to, A, recognize what it is you're dealing with. Get the help you need, whether you join our course or whether you find another course or go to an online book or workshop. It's really important to get help and to get help from people who have the expertise to help you. And then once you do commit to that help, really stick with it. Whatever program you decide to go with. Go all in because we know half-hearted approaches don't work. Do the work. Set yourself up to succeed. Stick with the program and give yourself a fair chance because most people, when they go through with that, they do find they experience significant improvement.
1: And Karen, uh, we kind of running out of time here, but I also got to ask you this how does a person deal with a setback? Because there are ebbs and flows for everybody. Nobody is perfect. I feel like over time, we have our good days and we have our bad days. And if somebody has been doing really, really, really well, but then they have a really, really, really bad day and they do, they, they go to the drive-through, they eat that entire pint of Haagen-Dazs. How does that person ensure that that can just be a one-off and not be the beginning of a return to that unhealthy, habitual eating cycle.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I've been there, Chuck. I've, I've done that. And, you know, in the past and before having, you know, some of the knowledge of these strategies myself, I'd beat myself up. You know, it felt really crappy. Um, You know, I felt like a failure. And that mindset is not putting us in a place to, to make progress. Right. And so what is helpful is to look at that as an opportunity to figure out in that, you know, once it happened. Right. Like, okay, like, accept it. It happened and and use it to gain some knowledge about what you might do moving forward. Right. Like what happened today? Like what was going on, what, you know, just running through that checklist again of, you know, emotions and physical sensations and um, the stories my mind was telling me and recognizing that I can use this, you know, to figure out in my mind, like, oh, hmm, what did I learn from this? How do I want my behavior to look next time? And how can I pull myself back on track, like immediately, because that's always possible. We always have the capability to get back on track. You know, we don't have to wait until tomorrow or Monday. You know, we can do it the next time we we are hungry and, you know, have the opportunity to eat. Um, and so really just keeping an open mindset. And just like anyone, whether it's an athlete or a musician, you know, we all make mistakes. And we learn from them and we figure out, we reassess and think through like, hmm, how do I want my behavior to look next time? Or what would set me up for success, you know, when I'm in this position again?
1: An interesting question. I I definitely want to get to this before we wrap things up today from Sherry Graham at 1242. Dr. Ramon, coming to you for this. How much of binge eating is about food addiction? And is there a difference between the two?
2: You know, I'm, I'm not sure there is um, that most often when people are finding themselves binge eating or eating emotionally, um, they're eating on foods that are addictive. You know, most we saw some people said clementines or fruits, but for most people, it's going to be these highly processed foods that are high in added fats, sugars, um, fat, um, salt. However, some people may say, you know, they deal with food addiction. Some people say they deal with stress eating. Some people say they eat, deal with emotional eating. Some people will call it binge eating. Some people will call it late night eating. But I think those are just different ways that people may characterize it. But the underlying theme is usually the same, which is we're turning to food for reasons other than hunger. It's something habitual. And it's often associated with this sense of lack of control over the situation. It's more than just the occasional splurge. We realize we've gone to the past, uh, past that point of comfort. I think someone put in the chat box early on that they would eat to the point of feeling sick. Um, Some people will eat to the point of feeling sick. Some people may stop well before then, but in all cases, they feel like they just couldn't control what and how much they were eating. And that's the commonality. So what we call it, I don't think is as important as recognizing this pattern.
1: You know, it's funny. It's it, For me, it wasn't just eating to the point where you were feeling sick. It was knowing that you were going to feel sick, whether it was the moment you were done or down the line. Pizza used to tear my stomach up. I mean, it was the worst. I was so sick. It hurt my stomach so much. Yet I knew going in that I was gonna pay the penalty for it. And I remember like... One time uh, I was producing, um, before I got into classic rock, I was producing for a love song show here in Washington, D.C., the show called After Hours. Glenn Hollis was the host at the time. Love this guy. Phenomenal human being. Used to confide in him a lot, more so than I did really anybody else at the time. And I, I told him, man, I was like, you know, pizza just tears my stomach up every single time I eat it. And then two months later at a staff meeting, what do they have? pizza across the board. And and I reached for a slice and he's like, dude, do you really want that? And I was like, I'll be all right. He's like saying, why would you choose this when you know what the penalty is going to be? It was an embarrassing question to be asked, one that I had no real answer for because I was just completely out of control. And I felt like a doofus. I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed. I felt like there was something wrong with me at that point. But throughout the course of our conversation today and seeing everything that has been in the chat room, Dr. Ramon, would I be wrong in saying that, in fact, I was not abnormal? I was not a freak. I was not a doofus. I was, in fact, completely normal.
2: Absolutely. This is not about whether we're normal or abnormal. You were dealing with a serious health issue, Chuck, which is that you were turning to food for a variety of reasons. And you know, like most people, you were not getting the help that you needed. And there were people that were aware they didn't know how to help. They, the average layperson may mean well, but they really don't know. They may not have the tools to approach the topic, to help others. So yeah, I don't think there was anything abnormal about you, Chuck. You were dealing with a serious health issue.
1: Right on. And there are so many people who are suffering similarly, and you guys have this amazing course that begins on May 18th. I believe, um, Karen, it is a 12-week course. Can can you start us off and just kind of like walk us through what the class is going to look like, how they're um, going to be stacked up, and and just what the experience is going to be, be for a person who is struggling right you know, the people who are with us right now in the chat, the exam roomies who feel like they've reached rock bottom and don't know where else to turn other than that pint of Haagen-Dazs.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, we want to, you know, really welcome people into the program and help them identify, as Dr. Ramon said, the, the triggers. And also, right, like, first and foremost, like, what is this? How is this serving you? That's a really important step. So each week, you know, some of the things that people can expect are to come into the group and have a conversation, you know, an open conversation with other participants about, you know, their, their progress the past week and, you know, things that came up and each week there will be some component of homework. So just reviewing what that was and also having, um, you know, sometime in each class to walk through different types of strategies, you know, what are research based skills and strategies to help people to just build their toolbox of things they can turn to, to start to identify, um, you know, how the eating is serving them, you know, what is that reward, and also identifying their values so that they can connect their behaviors with their values uh, throughout the course of you know, not just throughout the course of um, the 12 weeks, but, you know, forever. Um, and providing information on what a healthy diet looks like, you know, what are the types of foods that, that serve people when they're trying to um, overcome binge and emotional eating. So there will be a component of, you know, group uh, discussion and sharing, in addition to having some information that's that's provided and shared and tools and strategies for people to practice from week to week.
1: And Dr. Ramon, stress is a big one for virtually everybody. We all have stress in life. And one of the biggest coping mechanisms, obviously, for stress is food. So I'm assuming that we're going to be touching on how to really deal with that stress on a day-to-day-to-day basis. Saw that come up a lot in the chat today. So this is something I'm hoping is going to be covered in the course.
2: Oh, absolutely, because that is the underlying issue is there's distress um, and that's leading to a behavior that's hurting someone. So recognizing that level of distress and then thinking about how can I cope with it? What are some things I can do? Um, You know, some stress is a part of life. So accepting that, but then also learning how to manage that is really important. So that's part of the homework every week.
1: I can't thank you guys enough for your time today. And I do want to end actually on a high note. And this is uh, an exam roomie by the name of Robin, who dropped this in the doctor's mailbag. And Robin wrote, with the help of my dietitian, I have been able to break the cycle with different types of intermittent fasting. I've lost 50 pounds in the last seven months and was a vegan prior to that for eight years. So even if you are in the plant-based realm already, and you're still struggling don't give up robin is living proof of that you can still turn things around you can always turn things around and i think dr ramon and karen your course is a great opportunity for someone who is struggling to start back in that healthier direction so my hat is off as somebody who has struggled with this his entire life My hat is off to both of you for taking the time to put this together to make the world a healthier place.
2: Thank you so much, Chuck, for everything you're doing.
1: So I want to take a second and go back to that study I was talking to Dr. Rahman and Karen about, the study of women between the ages of 60 and 83. And there was one little thing in there about this supposed binge eating gene, or at least you could infer about it. My question would have been, does obesity lead to binge eating? Or in fact, is there that binge eating gene? Well, what you can glean from this study and just glean what you will is that more than one third of participants in the study were obese. 36.4% of these women were obese. On top of that, an additional 23% were overweight. So in this study alone, you had close to 60% of participants who were struggling with their weight, many of whom identified as being a binge eater. So really, one does spur on the other, it would appear, when it comes to the food that we're choosing. And look, I, I don't want to sugarcoat this for anyone. This is something that can, I feel, be a lifelong struggle. At least it has been for me to this day. It's not just seeing the advertisement and getting a fleeting craving for the new concoction at a fast food restaurant. It's not just that or the bag of chips that sometimes in the grocery store says, mm, that seems pretty good right about now. I'm talking about even if it is the healthiest plate of food in the history of time. Eating to the point where you get full, seeing that there's still food left on your plate and having this compulsion and urge to keep going. And then the anger set in because you are full and you know that you shouldn't eat anymore. That's something that still comes up for me from time to time. And it frustrates the bejeebers out of me. I will admit. I will absolutely admit there have been some instances where I have pushed past full and I can't stand it. As a matter of fact, for me, that feeling is worse than the emotions that come with recognizing that you're full and wanting to continue that anger that is there with that. It's a different kind of anger, though, when you do keep going. It's the anger that you've let yourself down. It's the anger because now you may feel a little bit sick and it's an anger because you're worried that, oh my God, have I just opened up Pandora's box? Am I about to undo all of the hard work that I've put in for the past 13 years or however many years you have been on your journey? It's a lifelong thing and this mindful eating is something that takes practice and dedication every single day. And this is why I talk about accept the suck, accept the suck. This is what works. I know it sounds crazy, but I call it accept the suck because if you accept the fact when you are angry and you feel that drive to continue to eat, if you accept the fact that you're going to feel uncomfortable for the next little while, somehow you just feel a little bit better. It's peculiar. You've given yourself permission to operate in this space where you are uncomfortable. But you still don't give into that compulsion to keep eating. You feel better because now you're no longer saying, well, I'm a freak. I'm abnormal. I'm the only person in the world who feels this way. No, you're perfectly normal. And now you've said to yourself, I am normal. This is at least normal for me, and I'm giving myself permission to be uncomfortable right now. And somehow, by doing that, it helps the cravings, it helps that compulsion just a little bit enough so that time can elapse, the cravings, the anger will subside, and you can go about your life without having given in. I call that accepting the suck. Accept the fact that for that time, it's going to suck, but eventually, you're going to feel better and you're gonna feel way better than had you given in. No doubt about it, no doubt about it. So if you are interested again, In signing up for Dr. Rahman and Karen's classes on freedom from binge and emotional eating, classes that can really help you understand the patterns that we've been talking about today, the ones that lead to binge and emotional eating. And then most importantly, learning how to break those cycles. These are the classes for you. They are rooted deeply in proven approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy, Approaches that teach you skills for dealing with emotions and food and cravings. And then also they're going to teach you about mindfulness and letting judgment go and managing those setbacks and how a plant-based diet might just help out as well. So pcrm.org slash events to sign up or click that link right now in the episode notes. And once again, don't forget the big exam room live and in person in New York City, July 12th. Dr. Rob Osfeld, Dr. Neil Barnard, myself, and now Rip Esselstyn from Plant Strong will be joining us. So thrilled that he's going to be there that night, July 12th, in New York City. PCRM.org slash events. Or again, just click that link in the episode notes. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the incredible Dr. Venita Rahman and Karen Smith for being here and letting us be a little bit vulnerable today. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.